0: Right, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians, chapter one, verses eighteen through twenty-five. So right after Romans, towards the beginning of the New Testament, First uh, Corinthians, chapter one, verses eighteen to twenty-five. If your Bible's like mine it has "Christ the Wisdom and Power of God" as a title, or something close to that. To start off, so listen as we read the Word of the Lord. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand science and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Mm-hmm. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So i titled this, The Power of the Cross. So I want to describe the church at Corinth. Mm-hmm. So the church at Corinth, in general, had a lot of problems with it. I think generally speaking, we look back to the New Testament church and say, let's get back to the New Testament church how they preached, the ethics that they had, the relationship that they had, just how pure the church was. And I think the Church of Corinth shows us that apostles were there. The apostles did create this church. Paul created this church. But it wasn't quite as nice as I think we want to think it was. They still had the same sinful people, same sinful problems. And so within the Church of Corinth, there were a couple of factions. They were the believers, those who profess the name of Christ. What they tend to do, and we'll see this later on, is they latched on to certain apostles. They latched on to these certain great speakers, these certain like, great philosophers. We can kind of bring that into today and say that those in politics, the podcasts that we follow, some of my favorite podcasts and some of your guys' favorite podcasts, the books that we read, Those things in the Corinthian church creating dissensions, a lot of disunity with the Corinthian church. It was like we see before, I follow Paulus, I follow Paul, some follow Christ. They they were seen as not one unified Christian church. It was these different apostles had different church ideas, different philosophies of how to do church. So these Corinthians were divided. Like, who do we follow? I want to follow this person. I want to follow this person. And so Paul's writing to them, saying, not follow these different people. We are following Christ overall. So our current climate isn't that much difference than the church in Corinth. Mm-hmm. It describes the church of Corinth more specifically. So there was a lot of disunity. If you really look at all of the, all the pictures of the churches in the New Testament, the one that we think has the most problems as a congregation, was probably the Church of Corinth. They had the most problems really pervasively throughout. So we can think of our current, cli- uh, current climate and context and see a lot of similarities between our disunity, both as believers having, having conversations and debates around doctrines that shouldn't be as vigorous or as heated as they are, or those who are outside the church having debates as well. And so within the Church of Corinth, and as we think of today, so though the Church of Corinth was divided by the wisdom of the world, we are united by the preaching of the cross. So take a little bit of the background of Corinth, and then try to see how that affects us today, how this helps us read this letter a little bit better, and through Christ and Him crucified. So there's three points as you guys see on the outline. We start off with the word of the cross, the first three verses of this, 18 to 20. The wisdom of the world, the next two verses, 21 to 22. And the weakness of Christ, the last three verses, 23 to 25. So like I said, the back of these seven verses, they're they're part of a much larger discourse from Paul. I think all too often we can take these separate portions of Corinthians and build kind of a theology off of this or just say, Because if this happened, we see this happening. We need to see this very specifically as the beginning of his arguments to the Church of Corinth. So these these Corinthians, and you guys are going to see and hear a lot of parallels to today. These Corinthians were very concerned, very concerned about their social status. This is like how how they built themselves up. Who do I follow? What do I read? Who do I listen to? What lectures do I go to? which is something that that they would have done. They wouldn't listen to music. They wouldn't listen to podcasts. They wouldn't go out and read books. They would actually find their favorite philosopher, walk over to that town or that part of the city, sit under this philosopher or this great speaker, and say, this is my favorite speaker. This is the one I listen to the most. They boasted a lot about their wisdom, a lot about how much wisdom they had, and especially speaking, and this more specifically relates to this, about how well crafted their, their their leaders' speeches in specific were. So it was how well of an order, how like how strong was a rhetoric, how good of a speaker is a person I'm about to go to? How good is he? Does he tickle my ears? Is he somebody who when he speaks, not just I learn a lot, but it sounds good. It's smooth, it's it's like honey coming into me. That was that was kind of what they were most concerned about. So they were much more concerned about like intellectual prowess who's the smartest in this room who has the most followers who follows the biggest guy that's the church of corinth and so what this would do was it led them to question paul because we see in other letters paul very specifically says i don't speak in eloquent wisdom i don't speak to tickle ears so there are those who are going to come to tickle ears. So Corinth was like, we want to listen to these people who are really good at what they do. They sound good. This Paul guy, he's not polished. He doesn't have the background these other philosophers do. He doesn't sound like these other philosophers. And so they really question the apostleship of Paul. And because Paul, Apollos, and, and potentially Peter, they would go to the church, leave, go to another church come back to the church of Corinth, go to the church of Ephesus. They kind of bounce around a little bit and would remind them of what they would call like itinerant philosophers. We can kind of think of like our evangelists today. Think of your favorite evangelist, somebody who goes city to city, country to country. For the church of Corinth, they would have seen that as like a philosopher, somebody who would come up with great ideas. And so they would associate these people with Paul or with Apollos and say so they come in with these great words of wisdom and they leave... And then they come back with more great words of wisdom. So, like, what's the difference between Paul and these other philosophers of our day? And so, with all of this, they provided themselves. The number one thing in Corinth, the absolute like zenith, at the top of what they were looking for was wisdom, what they would call Sophia. Just how smart is this person coming in? What are his credentials? What's his academic background? Who follows this guy? So for me, this is entirely convicting. This is something I can think of myself. And I think we as a church can think of as well. How well known is this guy that we follow? Who does he follow? Because we want to follow him. So it leads us to our first point with all this little background. So this, this very wisdom that they were so fond of. At the end of verse 17, which we'll go through. Paul uses their own term for wisdom against them in verse 18. So 17 to 18 is huge for this transition. The question of minds of all the Corinthians might have been, how is it possible that this Christ is true wisdom? We feel like we know what this wisdom is. How is it possible Christ is? So point one, the word of the cross, these first three verses... And so with this first verse, where it starts, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. The very first verse, we have to see this very connected to verse 17. The two words, the word of the cross, share with verse 17 to what it says, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, right in the middle of verse 17, eloquence and word that's the same word in the original language the two words that change between eloquent wisdom and word of the cross cross stays the same so we have to see how does this influence what paul's saying so paul's saying you looked for eloquent wisdom i'm giving you the word of the cross you want this like wisdom you want to be built up in your own selves with all this learning with all of this worldly learning, versus being built up in the language of the cross. I think it's a little bit unfortunate, not terrible, but a little bit unfortunate that the editors of most Bibles break off between 17 and 18, because it, it can kind of seem like disunified, so we don't see a really clear transition from what Paul's saying. So he's playing off these two words, saying, you look for this, I'm giving you this. And so it's playing off this section. And so with this as well, seeing this, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Those who are perishing is not those who are destroyed. So he's not giving us two groups of people necessarily. He's saying, you who follow this system, you're headed down the path of destruction. You're thinking that this wisdom that you're seeing from these philosophers these academics, these lawyers, these letters of law, you're thinking that this wisdom in yourself, all this learning is going to build you up and bring you closer and closer and closer to true wisdom and salvation. Well, Paul is telling them the word of the cross tells you that's your very instruments of destruction. They're leading towards the path of perishing. They're not destroyed yet, but they're leading put towards the path of destruction. And he's juxtaposing that right after says, but to those who are being saved is the power of God. So the very same cross that pushes somebody perishing further into perishing takes those of us who are saved and pushes us closer and closer towards glory. And so what precisely is this word of the cross? What is Paul talking about with this word of the cross? Paul seems to be using it as another way of saying of the gospel, as we'll see later on in verses 24 and 25. It's the contents of what he's preaching. It's not just a simple word or a concept saying for the word of the cross, this preached message, Christ and him crucified, that itself is what sets apart those who are perishing and those who are being saved. It is a folly to those perishing Because one scholar comments, it is an assault on the very values of power, glory, honor, and success so dear to Corinthians and many other societies. So what they thought was their path to salvation is the very thing used towards their destruction. And so we can think, how is this active in our society today? What do we think of? What do we read? What do we think builds up within ourselves, or those who don't believe in Jesus, thinking, "What can we do to save ourselves? What can we do to advance ourselves and society?" So, how true is this of us? So, if you're part of the of the right political party, the school association, if you follow the right team, follow the right sports league, Facebook group, read the right books, listen to the right podcast, we're promised true wisdom. From this world, being on the right side of history, a clear vision amidst all the fluff—if we only subscribe. Corinth knew this and lived it. This is their society, and those being saved is the power of God. And we need to feel this shock. When it says the power of God, that those in Corinthians still had the cross as a means of execution, they would have more associated the cross, with death and destruction, public humiliation. Because what the cross would be done, usually we see it like high and lifted up. Most usually in Roman society, the cross is about eye level. So when you saw the crucified person, they would have been looking you right in the eyes. This was a very humiliating thing. And when he says, the word of the cross is a very power of God to those perishing, this would have been a shock to the Corinthians. They would have been saying, So you're saying that humiliating cross, that's the thing that provides us power. Those have been two very, very different concepts. All too often we can place a lot on this. That's not there, but we have to think with the Corinthians, they still had the cross as a means of execution. They still absolutely would have seen this as absolute humiliation. This is a bad criminal. So when he's comparing this with the power of God, their jaws would have dropped. I said, how is this the power of God? So then Paul grounds this, verse 18 and verse 19. So when he says, for it is written, and then he quotes from Isaiah 29, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. So Paul is doing a couple of things here. When he quotes this, He's quoting this because there's a narrative of judgments and grace in Isaiah 29. It's It's a very specific indictment on the people of those who are wise trying to build themselves up and those who are looking for that wisdom trying to build themselves as well. Those who are foolish, but in reality, the power of salvation. So Isaiah, if you go back to Isaiah 29, Isaiah uses a word for wonderful right before this quote that Paul uses so Paul takes like the last half of verse 14 Isaiah 2914 and the first half of Isaiah 2914 uses wonderful three times and later on in Isaiah as well and then earlier in Isaiah wonderful is used of the Lord so Lord is said to be wonderful in counsel so what Paul's is doing is he's taking the second half of Isaiah 29. He's assuming we already know the first half of Isaiah 29, because most of his audience likely would have known a good portion of the Old Testament, because that's the only books that they had as they were preaching. So he's using this, he's connecting these two concepts. He's saying the Lord is the one who's prophesying this through his servant Isaiah. And so this may imply what we call messianic involvement. So Isaiah's looking towards the future, saying there's one who's coming By his coming to take on the wisdom of this world, to those who are foolish in this world, taking this as judgments. So Isaiah, at the end of this, when it says, the discerning I will thwart, right at the end of verse 19, Paul actually changes words. So if you look at Isaiah 29, 14, Isaiah uses hide. Paul changes this. And there's some commentators and some who don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture who say, well, Paul changes this, so therefore Paul's not using the Old Testament, therefore the Old Testament's not inerrance. Why are we reading this book? I think Paul does this for a very, very specific reason. And he's showing us this. Paul changes this word in what the ESV translates as to thwart, it's almost like to destroy. And he's alluding us back to, it's the same word used for those who are perishing. So at the end, or like in the, in the middle of verse 18, when it says, the cross is folly to those who are perishing, the same root word is the one at the end of verse 19, discerning, I will thwart. So he's trying to connect these two concepts for us. And he changes this because they are withheld. But when Isaiah is prophesying this, prophesying to the nation of Israel, into to those outside of Israel, under the covenant, he's telling them, don't follow this wisdom. Don't follow your own means of salvation. Don't try to build yourself up, because that's your very means of your own destruction. And he's saying, the Lord is hiding this. He's hiding his destruction. He's hiding what we now know as the cross for a later day. They're hells of the day of judgments. which is saying, which is, this is what's happening in the cross of Christ. Paul changes this word because he's saying what Christ did, accomplished what Isaiah prophesied. Which is why he changes this. So again, if you look at Isaiah 29-14, the word's difference than what Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 1-19. But he changes it because he's saying this is fulfilled. Not saying it's different or I messed up and I was, I, I meant to write one word and I wrote another word. He's saying this is fulfilled. The wisdom ...of the wise and the discerning of the discerned, I will thwart. As one scholar says, the wonderful yet shocking things... ...that the prophet Isaiah foretells... ...with messianic overtones... ...are what Paul in Corinthians declares... ...now happens through Christ crucified. What the God hid in Isaiah in chapter 29, Christ reveals in 1 Corinthians, which is why this change of word is so massive in 1 Corinthians. And so after grounding his response in the Old Testament, and Isaiah 29, he then immediately after, in verse 20, again alludes back to Isaiah, Isaiah 33:18. 18, these threefold questions, when he says, where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? In the original, it's, it's two very quick, like, triplets. So it's in boom, 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 boom. It's very short. It would have been very, like, very surprising for those listeners. It would be very shocking, a very quick, like, rhetorical use of this. And so he's setting up this parallel to what he's about to describe concerning Jews and Greeks. So the wise... Would have been what the Greeks would have understood is like, oh, these are these are the smart guys, these are those academics. That's that guy from Harvard who's coming over here. He's got all the wisdom that I need. He's he's the philosopher. He's the guy that I need to listen to if I want to level up in society. The scribe would have been what we think of Pharisees. What they would have understood in the New Testament is Pharisees. Those are the ones who really know the law. They really know the Bible. They're really smart. They got their stuff together. And the debater would have been like a wandering philosopher. Somebody who's not attached to anything. He's just really smart. He's a really good speaker. He's really engaging. Almost like what you can think of today compared to like a self-help guru. So if you think of a Tony Robbins going around the United States, going around the world and saying, hey, this is what you got to do to be the best you. That's what the debater likely is compared to in Corinthians. So these are these are pervasive presences in Corinth. They're the top of the top. So when he's saying, where's this one? Where's this one? Where's this one? He's setting up this rhetoric. He's saying, all of those that you assume give you life, that is the very means of your foolishness the very means you think you build yourself up they're the very means the cross uses to show you your foolishness so Paul right here he's on straight on attack mode he's telling the church of Corinth you've allowed these people in your assembly you've allowed your ears to hear this stuff to be influenced this stuff I'm going to show you the cross gives the exact opposite of what you think it is like I said, the Paul, Paul uses the same word for foolish to reverse it on them. He says at the end of verse 20, has not, God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So the very thing that made them foolish is what God is using himself. God has made foolish in the wisdom of this world. So they don't think necessarily of this physical world. We want to think more of like this age? Paul uses a lot of this concept. He'll say the age to come and the age we now belong in. The age that now we that we now belong in is consumed with these debates, consumed with this wisdom. He's contrasting this world, this world's wisdom, and the world wisdom to come. And this moves us into verses 21 to 22. So he's building his case. He's saying. You've allowed these things in your church. This church is supposed to be unified. This church is supposed to be under the preaching of the cross. But you think true wisdom, true salvation comes from all of these great academics, these great philosophers, these self-help gurus. They know, as point two, the wisdom of the world is what they think it is. And this is what Paul is indicting them against. So in God's wisdom, he has concealed the knowledge of his son as we see in verse 21 and true wisdom from this world this wisdom the son can only be known through the spirit as verse 21 paul says for since in the wisdom of the world or since the wisdom of god the world did not know god through wisdom it pleased god through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe and i think calvin very, very succinctly describes this. He says, For it is true that this world is like a theater in which the Lord presents to us a clear manifestation of his glory. Yet we are stone blinds, not because the manifestation is furnished obscurely, but because we are alienated in minds. And for this matter, we lack not merely inclination, but ability. For notwithstanding that God shows himself openly, it is only with the eyes of faith that we can behold him, save only that we receive a slight perception of his divinity, sufficient to render us excusable. So a short way of describing what Calvin's saying, what Paul's saying in this, the wisdom doesn't know God because God hasn't given them the eyes of that true faith. They're looking at this world for wisdom versus looking through the spirits for wisdom so Paul links in verse 21 his own foolish preaching in verse 17. He says the foolish preaching is contrasting from the wise. He does not preach in eloquent wisdom. And don't think he's trying to preach stupidly or it doesn't make any sense or it's jumbled or it's not unified. What he means by eloquent is by the standards of that world, by trying to like use fancy language, uh, trying to refer to fancy theologians or fancy philosophers. He's saying, all I do is preach Christ and Him crucified. So it's not unclear and unstructured and incoherence. He's relying on the Spirit. He's saying, I preach by and through the spirits Over rhetoric, over persuasion. He's not trying to persuade you. He uses the Spirit to work. And then it pleased God. So this evokes... At the end of this, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And Paul uses the same phrase that's used in the Gospels when God takes pleasure in Jesus' baptism. When he takes pleasure in giving the kingdom to his son. Revealed the son to Paul and Acts. Take pleasure in the fullness of deity dwelling bodily in Christ. And Ephesians takes pleasure to predestine us, the elect, into adoption. It takes pleasure to make known the mystery of his will. So please, God, to use this very foolishness to save those who are perishing, to save those towards redemption. Paul then further elaborates on the wise, the scribe, and the debater that he introduces at verse 20. So Paul's explaining his previous statements. This is the result of preaching the cross towards foolishness. So the wise in that day would have been very, very kind of linked to the Greek. They were the ones looking for the wisdom of this world. And then the scribe, again, we see in the Gospels, using the same word for Pharisees, or evokes a sense of the Pharisees. So those who who are doggedly for the law. The ones who place the law on top of those who are saved. And the bater, again, would have been that wandering guru who's not really attached to anything else. He's just the one that when you listen to him, you feel good, you feel built up. And so Paul uses these things. Paul's explaining his previous statements. And in this verse as well, in verse 22, for Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. So we see in Mark 8, we did a couple weeks ago in the morning service. The Jews sought science. They were looking for the messianic king. They're looking for another David, another conquering king, somebody who didn't come in in weakness, somebody who came in with strength, who took on the Roman authorities, who said, you're taxing my people. I want to take you down, wipe you out instead of my kingdom. That's what Paul is saying right here. For Jews are seeking signs. They're looking, those, they believe that their covenant status is secured forever without regard to the law. They renewed David to militarily subdue Rome instead of an earthly kingdom, a crucified Savior, was unimaginable. Someone who came in a weakness, died on the very means of the cross, that was supposed to be a curse. That's not what they were looking for. Deuteronomy 21 Shows us that cursed be the one who's hanged on the cross. So when Jesus is hanged on the cross, there's a, there's no way he can be our Savior. There's no way that he used the very means that the Romans set up to nullify, to humiliate. There's no way that can be used to lift up our Savior. So to parallel what the Jews, Jews are looking for, the Greeks seek wisdom, they look for knowledge in this world. They want the next best thing. I mean, you can almost, like, they're the founders of FOMO. They're, they've got that fear of missing out. Like, What's that new big thing that's coming out? What's that new flock? What's that new big book? What's that new course that's coming out that's going to give me the wisdom that I need in order to level up in society? And so Paul's in these verses after this, but uh, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, And folly to Gentiles. We can think he just talked about Jews and Greeks. Why in the world is he switching from Jews to Gentiles? So, Paul's not speaking of necessarily ethnic Greeks. What he's saying is those who are in the covenants, who pride themselves as being God's people, and those who are outside the covenants, who didn't have that that genealogical link within the covenants. So, these people, their salvation, was in their knowledge. The more they knew, the further they leveled up in the enlightenment, the further they felt like they had this knowledge, the further that they felt, the more that I know, that gets me closer. I need to be smarter. I need to had this higher position. I need to be higher in society. And that gives me this pride, that gives me the wisdom that this world offers. And then Paul, right after this, contrasts all of this. He's like, this is what you're all looking for. But Christ is the humiliated one. Christ is the weak one. Christ is the one who didn't come to build himself up. Christ is the one who did break himself down, who did come in the form of likeness of man, not in that conquering king that he could have come in. He came in in humility. While we're looking to be built up, What Christ did is he came to be broken down, which is our example and the one who gives us this power. Leads us to our last point, the weakness of Christ. Paul contrasts what others seek with what we preach, as he says in verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. You are looking for wisdom. You're looking to be built up in this wisdom. You're looking all of these different factions, all these different philosophers, these Harvard academically trained people, MIT academically trained, those coming from overseas, those coming from all this. You're assuming that's where your wisdom comes from. The next big podcast, the next big book, the next big conference. That's where wisdom comes from. And Notice he doesn't say, I preach, but we preach. Paul speaking on behalf of him and the apostles. He's saying, this is the message we were commissioned to give by Christ himself. Those commissioned to preach the gospel. Those in Corinth are looking for the same things. They're probably made up of Jews and Gentiles. And in fact, they're likely made, they're made up of these two groups. Paul contrasts this with the, what the power of God is. The preaching of Christ and him crucified. Paul returns to the word of the cross with preaching Christ crucified. This is what we preach, not eloquent wisdom. It doesn't sound good to the world. It doesn't sound like this builds me up to the world. It sounds weak to the world. The very means of our salvation is viewed as weakness to the world. This Christ crucified, the content of Paul and the apostles' preaching, is then shown to be the stumbling block for the Jews and Greeks who are seeking signs and wisdom, respectively. For the Jews, they stumble, like I alluded to earlier, because Christ crucified is not what they're looking for. Again, they take Deuteronomy twenty-one, twenty-three. For cursed is the one who hangs on the cross. The covenant curse is placed on the one who's on the cross. And the Jews look at that, who are in this covenant, saying, that's not what's supposed to happen. That's that curse. That can't give us life. And as we'll see later on, the griefs are looking for wisdom. They, they seek wisdom to build themselves up. they almost like ascending. They use this language, ascend the ladder of consciousness. I want to be my better self. I want to build myself up. For the smarter they get, the closer to salvation they feel. The cross demands self-emptying, which is foreign to them. And it's foreign to us. Paul then takes the same two groups who stumble and become foolish to say that God still uses this to build them up in Christ. Because he says in verse 24, But to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, the ones he just condemned, the last two verses, those who are seeking those wrong signs, and those who are seeking to build themselves, I'm still calling them. I'm still calling them outside of themselves. The power of God still in Christ still breaks the stumbling block. What the Jews are looking for in the covenants and the folly of those who are looking for wisdom, it still breaks through that, no matter how strong that is. Crucifixion is the means of salvation. This resurrection is the means. Self-emptying is filling with Christ. Filling with wisdom is self-emptying Christ. Christ crucified is wisdom and power. It's against everything the world tells us it is. This is how God saves. Through the foolishness of the cross. And we have to see this language very particularly. It's not, this is foolish. It's foolish in the eyes of the world. This is not how it's supposed to work. It's supposed to be, I build myself up. I'm the one who looks for my own truth. I'm the one who wants to find my society, my people, versus emptying my desires and taking on Christ. This is how God says, through the foolishness of the cross, the mystery hidden for ages slowly revealed to his servants. The foolishness and weakness of Christ, of God, are wiser and stronger than man as verse 25 shows us. the foolish For the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. So con- co- commenting on this section, Ambrosius, or fourth century theologian, he said, when Paul speaks of the foolishness of God, he's not implying that God is foolish. Rather, he's saying that since God's way of reasoning is in accord with the things of the Spirit's, it confounds the reasoning of this world. This is spiritual wisdom. This is true wisdom. So often we think spiritual wisdom is a little bit less than true or not quite as good, but seeing this as true wisdom. And Hebrews, the book of Hebrews tells us all about this, that the world to come is that true world. The heavenly tabernacle is that true tabernacle. The spirit to come is the spirit we now have. And that gives us access to that true wisdom. So God works through the spirits, through the wisdom of the spirit, to save those who think they're wise in this world, shows them true wisdom. God takes what man does to build himself up to the gods. They want to be more like God. The more wisdom we have, the closer to these gods. In Greek society, had a million gods. There's gods of wisdom gods fertility, gods of love. And man wants to build themselves up in wisdom. And then those in the church of Corinth, those who call themselves Christians, still have this desire. We still have this desire to build ourselves up to the gods. But God's wisdom is true wisdom. Spiritual wisdom is what is unable to be understood by people of this world, as Paul stated at the, at the end of verse 20. Paul's not telling us to escape this world. And I think too often we can think that. We have to get out of here. We have to create our own little community of our own little wisdom. It's not what Paul's saying here. What he's saying is we have to place ourselves under the obedience of Christ on the cross to receive that wisdom that comes from above. So, we're not separating ourselves from this world, we have this wisdom through the Spirit. We have this wisdom in a world that thinks that wisdom is something different. So to conclude, Paul is speaking to a Christian context, very clearly speaking to a Christian context. They're disunified, but they're still a Christian context, the church in Corinth. They're rife with controversy, disunity, following their favorite leaders. As it says right before this, I follow Paulus, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. Does this sound familiar to us? The solution is nothing other than realigning ourselves with true wisdom, the crucified and resurrected Christ, to give us true spiritual wisdom in order that this cross is not the stumbling block or foolishness for us. Isaiah prophesied, as we saw in verse 19, of the judgment of the upon the wisdom of the age, the wise of this age. And Paul is saying that Christ fulfilled this prophecy in the foolishness of the cross. So the question is, will you be foolish in this world's eyes, yet with the true spiritual insights of Christ and his righteousness? Or you be found among those Seeking personal salvation through your own works, through your own wisdom. The cross divides the two and demands an answer. What I want to say is, if you're not a Christian, know that Paul's indictments, his, we call his case, his lawyer case, it lands on you. Isaiah saw it 700 years before Christ Paul lengthens the time of judgment even up until this point. Will you be made foolish and to continue on the path towards destruction? Or will you cling to the weakness of Christ to be made stronger than man? And if you're a Christian, Christ was judged in your place on the cross. He was judged as a foolish man so that we would be made wise. He was judged as weakness so that we could be strong. Our strength is pursued in weakness, and his weakness gives us that strength. It is it is everything opposite of what the world thinks it is, and what the world tells us it is. He was treated as though he were wise in this age, in order that you may be treated as wise in the age to come. And so it's that spirit that comes upon us that gives us this true wisdom as us as believers in the church, to be unified as a church under that true wisdom. And those who are not yet found in Christ, the wisdom of this world is going to be made foolish. It says, be with the one who is made foolish on the cross so you can be wise in the age to come. Let us pray.